in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus again this morning. So if you would go there with me. And as I did last week, I'll do again this week. I'll pull from several places in Ephesians and other letters of Paul in hopes of showing you a portrait, God's portrait, of the church of Jesus Christ. For those of you who missed last Sunday, we entered a short three-part series on what Christian community is and what Christian community looks like. For those of you who weren't here, just let me bring you up to speed for a minute. In a nutshell, last week we saw how the gospel provides the biblical framework by which we understand who we are as a people and how we got here and why we exist and where we're going as a people. The gospel reveals the grand sweep of God's plan in Jesus Christ for the church. In Jesus Christ, God planned to show mercy to rebels. His plan reaches all the way back into eternity past when he chose from a fallen humanity, a people, a bride for his own son. His plan then rolls out through his work in history, the most supreme work being when God's own son entered history to provide salvation for guilty sinners through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And his plan will ultimately increase the volume of worship in heaven because because of the work of Jesus Christ. Sinners, once separated from God, would now populate the kingdom as trophies of God's grace. So forever, those who were chosen before history and whose sins were atoned for in history through the death of Jesus would then, at the end of history, reflect the immeasurable riches of God's mercy and kindness. Such is the plan for the church, and so goes the gospel of our Lord. More than that, we saw that that very gospel that explains who we are is also the very gospel that creates us. It was through the means of hearing the good news of hearing the gospel that God saved us and brought us into his family, the church. And the gospel message which God used to make us what we are would be the same message God uses to transform us into what he desires us to be. A community of people who bear God's image rightly in his kingdom. A community whose passions are captivated not by the power of sin, but by the preciousness of their husband who came to redeem his his adulterous bride. So we concluded last week that essentially the church is a gospel community. The gospel explains us, the gospel created us, and the gospel is what's transforming us. But what do we really mean when we say things like the gospel created us? Or the gospel is transforming us? 
The Bible is replete with passages revealing that the Word of God creates the people of God. But is it the mere dictation of sentences, of words, from a prophet's mouth? Or the mere words on a page in your Bibles? Or spoken by an evangelist? Is it just that alone that creates a people and transforms a people? The Bible reveals there's more to this picture. The church is indeed a gospel community. But it's only a gospel community insofar as it is also a spiritual community. Now, people throw around the word spiritual in all sorts of ways, so let me define what I mean by spiritual. I'm using the word spiritual much like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 15, where he contrasts the natural person who rejects the things of God with a spiritual person who receives and embraces the things of God. What's the difference about the, nat- the, the spiritual person that enables him to accept the things of God? Things like the truth about God and the truth about our sin and rebellion against him and the truth about what Christ has done to reconcile us again to God. What does the spiritual person possess that the natural person does not? Well, he has the spirit of the living God abiding in him and teaching him and opening his eyes to God's mercy in Christ. Hence, Paul calls that person spiritual. He's of the spirit. The church is made up of these kinds of individuals, spiritual individuals, individuals who possess God's spirit. We even see there in Ephesians chapter 1, verses, verse 13, Paul assuring the community of believers with these words. In Christ... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with his promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The church is a community sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit marks our acceptance with God and characterizes us until Jesus returns. For those of us who know Jesus Christ, we do well to remember that we haven't always been marked by this Spirit, have we? No, chapter 2, verse 2 says that at one time we were all following a different Spirit. Why don't you go there with me? Chapter 2, verse 2, when we were dead in our sins, we followed, it says, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan. That's the God of this world. Together with our bondage to sin, Satan was our oppressing master until God arrested us with his love in Christ until God shone in our hearts, as 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, shone in our hearts, giving us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and put His Spirit in us. The church is a gospel community only when the Spirit of God dwells in that community. 
The gospel word creates us and transforms us insofar as God's spirit makes it effective and applies it to our hearts and arrests our affections for Jesus more and more and more. This is why Paul thanks God for the little gathering of believers in Thessalonica. In chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, he gives thanks for them because, he says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I pray that more for you guys than any other prayer I probably pray. That the word would continue to come on this people with power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Without the spirit shining the spotlight on Christ through the preaching of the gospel, as Christ said that he would do, in John, 3, in John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, Jesus says, He will glorify me. He will make the risen Lord Jesus look beautiful in the eyes of His people. Without the Spirit shining the spotlight on Jesus, awakening us to the beauty of God's mercy in Jesus, filling us with the life of God, there would be no church. There would be no Christianity it would be no relationship with God. The church is a word and spirit kind of community. The gospel of Jesus will characterize us as much as the spirit makes the word effective and the spirit will fill us as much as we center each other on the gospel of Jesus. The word and spirit go together in shaping who we are and empowering what we do. So then, what does it look like for the church to be a spiritual community? I'll give you just four characteristics. There are more, but you're getting four this morning. Four characteristics of a community characterized by the work of the Spirit. Number one, the Spirit unites the church under one Lord. The Spirit unites the church under one Lord. It doesn't take much reading in our Bibles to, to realize how sin wreaks havoc on community. In chapters 3 and 4 of Genesis, the sin of one man, Adam, brought great strife into the marriage relationship. And not too much further into the story, we're told that Adam... Adam's oldest son, Cain, kills his brother out of jealousy. And it doesn't take much longer before we're into chapters 6 to 9, where God is destroying the world because all the intentions of his heart are evil toward one another. And another his rehearsing of Israel's history that's wrought with separation and divorce and kingdoms being torn apart. God created community for the good of man. And sin destroys it. Not only does sin separate us from fellowship with God. 
who knows what community is, is and supposed to be, but it also separates us from fellowship with one another. Just think of the countless number of relationships torn by sin and ruined by pride and hopelessly lost because of people's bondage to their selfishness. At every turn, it seems like disunity reigns. In America, over half of marriages end with divorce. Families are torn apart by horrific sins. Friendships are ended over lies and betrayal. Entire nations are at each other's throats over power and money. Ethnicities draw a line in the sand against one another. Feminists prepare their counterattacks against the male chauvinist pigs. Republicans blame the Democrats for the economy's problems and vice versa. Younger generations despise the older generations who lack their swagger while older generations outright reject anything new despite what value it might bring to society. And just a few clicks here or there on the internet and you have one man fueling a multi-billion dollar industry that wrecks the lives of his fellow image bearers. And the list could go on. Just read the news. The world is an illustration of what Titus 3 3 says, is true of everybody apart from Jesus Christ. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. As one writer put it, when he entered the chaotic society of Somaliland for missions, he said it was a dark insanity. That's an accurate description of community apart from Christ, regardless of how clean it may even look on the outside at times. Without Christ, true community doesn't exist, only darkness and hostility. But let me read to you from Ephesians 2 what happens to a fallen community when Jesus comes to the rescue. Not only do we see in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, that He reconciles us to God, the chief problem underlying broken communities. But we also get this starting in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man or one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now specifically, Paul is speaking about Jesus reconciling believing Jews and believing Gentiles into one new humanity. Two ethnicities known for their animosity toward each other because of their sin. He's talking about reconciling them into one new people. And Jesus does that first 
by reconciling them both to God, fixing their vertical relationship. If there's no peace with God in your life, there will never be peace with others. And secondly, by reconciling them to each other, fixing the horizontal relationships. His death tore down everything that would keep them apart from God and apart from one another. And he did the same for all of us. But how is Jesus' objective reconciling work? How is that work that's, that happened 2,000 years ago, how is that work brought to fruition as history plays out? If all of us throughout history are born into this dark insanity in Adam... How is, it, how is it that we're actually delivered from it and united to this new community with God as our Father? The answer is in verse 18. For through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The Holy Spirit does this work. The dark insanity is no match for the Spirit of God. He takes the reconciling work of Jesus, which we know... Through the gospel message, he takes that work, he presses it into the hearts of individuals, thrills them with it, such that God becomes their trust. They're even going to him. They've got access to him. They're going to him. And then from that trust and from that unity with God flows unity out to others. Unity between them and the other brothers and sisters even becomes what they labor for in life. Chapter 4, verse 3 says, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These people are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. They pursue it zealously. Why? Because Jesus pursued it zealously for them, even when it meant his death on the cross. He pursued your unity with God and he pursued your unity with his covenant people. And the reason his people zealously pursue the same thing is because it is his spirit that is living within them. The spirit of God will not let the people of God break the bond of peace created by the son of God. To break that unity with our corrupt talk and bitterness and anger and clamor and slander, even our false assumptions about each other. Chapter 4, verse 30 says, it grieves the Holy Spirit. He's grieved when we tamper with this unity. As God's new humanity, we must trust the power of the Spirit to preserve our relationships. And foster unity in our relationships. We must trust that His power to do so is greater than our own. We must look our fears in the face. You know, when, when, when you know the encounter is going to be awkward. I don't know how this is going to go. Or, or when this conversation just has the potential to erupt in your mind. I'm going to tell him this. I don't know how he's going to take it. Or maybe this 
confession that I'm about to make. It's just not going to be received well. We look those fears in the face and we tell those fears about the omnipotent spirit of the living God who applies the work of the Son of God to the people of God all for the glory of God on the last day. The Spirit is our only hope for true, authentic community. Some of you may be sitting in a dark insanity right now and you don't know where to turn for help in your relationships with your parents or your husband, or your children, or your friends. You're alone and wonder if God even cares. Please know that God not only sees your need for community, but He's already acted on your behalf in Jesus Christ to give you community, not only with Himself, if you trust in Jesus, but He's also given you community with a family whose relationships have been supernaturally mended by His Holy Spirit. That's not to say the church is perfect, is a perfect community. Even Ephesians assumes we're going to need to forgive each other for our offenses. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's there because Paul knows people are sinning against each other in the church. So we're not perfect But we are united under one Lord by the third person of the Trinity, and He is omnipotent. He is mighty enough to preserve us and to unite us in our relationships. And no other community on planet Earth can boast of that. Save the church of Jesus Christ. Number two, the Spirit also indwells the entire church, not just a few people within the church. The Spirit indwells the entire church, not just a few people within the church. There was a time as God's plan rolled out under the Old Covenant when the Spirit did not indwell every individual in the community. The Spirit was certainly at work in God's chosen people under the Old Covenant, but only in a way that anticipated a much greater outpouring of God's Spirit under the New Covenant. The Spirit was poured out on the prophet and the priest and the king and a few other designated leaders. He empowered empowered these special leaders to lead and judge and mediate and speak on behalf of God, but not every individual enjoyed such a blessing. We even see Moses looking to a future day when the picture would be a bit different for God's people. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 29, Joshua is getting a bit perturbed by some of these guys who are breaking out in prophecy. And Moses says this to Joshua, Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. This same wish is then picked up later by the prophets who announce that a day is coming when the entire covenant community would possess the Spirit of God, not just a few in leadership. That day would come when a new covenant 
would be established and the reigning Messiah would pour out his spirit on all his people. Many of you are probably familiar with a text like Joel 2, which Paul quotes on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Might I also direct your attention to what Paul calls the Holy Spirit in in verse 13. We read it earlier. In verse 13 of chapter 1, he calls him the promised Holy Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit. When Jesus died on the cross, he inaugurated the new covenant. And we will celebrate that this morning as we take the Lord's Supper together. And when he rose from the dead, God seated him as the reigning Messiah above all rule and power and authority and dominion. Chapter 1, verse 20 says. And it's from that heavenly reign that Jesus then pours out the Spirit on every individual in the new community. Not just a few, on every one of us who confess Jesus as Lord. The promised Holy Spirit belongs to everyone who confesses Jesus as Lord. He belongs to Dale. He belongs to Todd and Chris and Rob and Sunday and Anita He belongs to Dan and Amy and Dawn. He belongs to all of us who confess him as Lord. So much so that Paul characterizes the church like this in chapter 2, verse 22. In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That should absolutely stun you because in verse 12 he said that we we had no hope and we were without God in the world. Now we're in the world and we're called a dwelling place for God's Spirit. The Spirit indwells us all. ...who confess Jesus as Lord. I hope that gives you some level of courage... ...and confidence in your Christian life... ...because in your greatest moments of defeat... ...and lack and need and despair... ...you have the third person of the Godhead dwelling in you. He's there to give you life. And more than that, He indwells about 170 others... In this community who possess the same spirit. The same spirit that helped Moses lead God's people through the wilderness. The same spirit that anointed the priests to intercede on behalf of the people. The same spirit who inspired the prophets to speak God's word in times of need. The same spirit who enabled a David to take confidence in his God while the rest of the community's faith gave way. The same spirit who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead and gave to him an indestructible life and will raise your body from the dead on the last day. 
And God has given these spirit-indwelt brothers and sisters to you and you to them. So turn to them when you're in need. And when someone comes to you in need, trust the Spirit to do His work through you. He is able, even when all you can see is inadequacies in yourself, He is able to make you competent for the work. Number three. The Spirit empowers and gifts the church for ministry. The Spirit empowers and gifts the church for ministry. Here's the picture so far. We've got, we've got people who have believed in the gospel. The Spirit takes these people, unites them under one Lord. He's pouring out His Spirit that that Spirit might indwell them that they might be built up into a holy temple. Now we need to see what happens in the church when these people have the Spirit. Paul speaks of it in terms of empowerment. In chapter 3, verse 16, he prays there that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. And we see it again in verse 20 of chapter 3. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Where did that power come from? It came from the Spirit. Back in verse 16. So the Spirit is the motivating power behind the life of the church. But let's get a little more specific. Because not all of his activities look the same in each one of us. Let's get a little more concrete for what this looks like in a community. As Paul does in chapter 4 of Ephesians. So read with me chapter 4 verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us. According to the measure of Christ's gift. So all of us are given a measure of grace. And that grace is referred to as Christ's gift. Verse 8. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, namely the earth... He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. I wish I had time to take you to Psalm 68 to explain this, but suffice it to say for now that this is a picture of King Jesus coming from heaven to earth. He descended into the lower regions, namely the earth, his incarnation, coming to earth, and the reason he's coming to earth is to do battle as a mighty warrior. Although this time he's not defeating armies and nations, he's defeating sin, death, and the devil. So it's a picture of Jesus coming from earth, coming to do battle with sin, death, and the devil 
winning through his cross and resurrection, and then ascending Mount Zion, a picture of the heavenly throne of God around all of his people, in the midst of all of his people, that he might rule over his people. And in the wake of this victory, of this ascension, in its wake, he gives gifts to the church. Now, the one he mentions here are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. He lists them because of his point that he's making about they have responsibility to equip the saints for the work of ministry, verse 12 says. But we also know from elsewhere that these aren't the only gifts he gives to the church. Like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, the whole book of Acts. He also gives his church people who serve and teach and give and exhort and lead and in others who help and administrate and another who does acts of mercy and another who prays and another who sings. He gives all kinds of gifts to the church. We also know how those gifts come to us. While he's in heaven, it says they come, they come by the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. But why does Jesus empower and give us these gifts through the Spirit? Well, the rest of verse 12 in chapter 4 of Ephesians tells us, the equipping by the leadership and the work of ministry by everybody else in the church, it all has this goal. Verse 12, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal, the fullness of Christ in his people. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 23, um, Paul even describes the church as Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We are the fullness of Christ in the world. And the way we become this and the way Christ's reign fills the earth is that he gifts his people with the Spirit that they might function as his body rightly. That we all might then come to maturity in Christ. Application. Christian growth does not happen in isolation, but in community. That's not to say we shouldn't spend time alone with God. We do grow through that as well, and we're really no benefit to the others when we neglect that discipline. But to attempt growth as a Christian, to attempt this maturity in Christ here, that we just read about, to attempt that apart from the church is a contradiction to the Christian life. 
As John Stott put it well in his reflections on Acts 2, he said, God didn't add people to the church without saving them, and he didn't save them without adding them to the church. Christian growth doesn't occur in isolation, but in community. According to Ephesians 4, the community with all its various gifts plays a vital role to your maturity in Christ, just as much as you play a vital role in seeing that the rest of the community matures. The picture is one in which we're all playing our respective parts toward each other's growth in Christ-likeness. This is why we emphasize for people entering membership here and reiterate for our members the value of corporate worship, of care groups, and members meetings. Those are the three primary care structures we've built into the life of this church. Some of you can't make care group on Wednesday nights because of your night shifts at work, but I would encourage you to find other ways to meet more often with the saints. Some of you are already doing that because you know that you will not that you know that you will not reach maturity in Christ on your own. In fact, Hebrews 10:25 warns Christians that ne- to neglect meeting with the body is stepping out into dangerous territory. We need each other's exhortations every day lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, chapter 3 of Hebrews says. I can't take the time to ask each of you how the sermons are affecting your life each Sunday, where you've been convicted by them, where you need repentance, what particular besetting sins you're wrestling against, what about what? in particular about Jesus looked more beautiful to you from this or that Sunday. But your care group members can, or your, part, or your accountability partners can. Even in addition to care group, I meet with Dan Hilmers every other Wednesday. And I love our times together. I need his prayers. I need his words of encouragement and exhortation. I need him to, to say things like on days when I'm just crushed and don't know if this is making sense and I'm fearful. I need him to say, Brett, you can't have the kingdom without the cross. All right. I need those exhortations. Before Dan, I met with another brother who's now in Central Asia. And nearly weekly, I still get text messages from this brother. Most recently... Hey, brother. Hey, brother from another mother. How are you doing today? Are you still loving Jesus and his church? How is your family? How is your soul? Your Bible reading and your prayer. I need that. Lest lest I be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here's another application. What gifts are you giving away to the church? Jesus didn't give you gifts to keep them in your prayer closet. He lavished you with the Spirit's gifts 
so that you might lavish them on others. You might be generous with what he's given you. God's spirit empowers you every day so that you might invest in the spiritual fitness of your brothers and sisters. Verse 16 says that our growth depends on each part of the body working properly. If nothing is coming out in service to your brothers and sisters, then one of three things is going on. Either the spirit is not present at all, Or you're in blatant disobedience against God. Or you just don't know what to do because you don't even know what gifts you have or how to use them. If the first two are true of you, Repent and submit yourself to Jesus' lordship today. He will have you. It's what he came to give his life for. And any, any one of us, any other brother and sister in this room would be more than happy to talk to you about him and walk with you through what that looks like. If you simply need help knowing your gifts... Here are a few helps on how to discern the way the Spirit has gifted you for the church. 1 Peter 4 even talks about our use of our gifts as a matter of stewardship, Christian stewardship. You can start by looking at the Word of God, which reveals to us who the Spirit is and how He works in the lives of individual Christians. Just read the book of Acts. Oh man, you get all kinds of examples of people serving each other and the church doing things and this lady becoming a patron to him and Priscilla and Aquila ministering to Paul and then doing so to Apollos and just all kinds of examples of what the gifts look like when when the Spirit is at work and moving His people. So read the Word and then pray. Paul says we should earnestly desire for the Spirit to work through us in unique ways to build up the church. And Jesus tells us in Luke 11, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So pray. Look at the Word. Pray. And then love. Love is the indispensable virtue that governs the use of all spiritual gifts. We only need to look at 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 to figure that out. Chapter 13 set right in the middle to say this is what governs everything. We shouldn't sit around and wait to serve the church as we discern our gifts. We don't sit around until we Doing, any, doing nothing, sitting on our hands before we love others, we should pursue love and the Spirit will gift us and fill us accordingly in order that the church might be built up. Look at the needs of the people in this church or in this or that ministry or in this or that neighborhood and seek to meet those needs. This is a lot more 
concrete and tangible. I mean, Paul's going from house to house around. I mean, you think he knocks on the door of a house of Priscilla? I need a place to stay. Of a Priscilla and Aquila? I, I need a place to stay. You guys got room? And, and they're, um, we're going to have to figure out if we have the gift of hospitality first. And then we'll serve you. But if we don't, you're going to have to go next door. No. They love. They pursue love at that moment. Come in. We have an extra bed. Here. We'll blow up a mattress. They had those. (laughs) So, love. Then, as you're loving folks, look look at how God is exciting you in this or that ministry and listen for confirmation from others in the church. Since the gifts function for the church's health, the church will also play a role in recognizing how this or that gift is working in you. So that's the short paragraph version of discerning your gifts. Word, prayer, love, look, and listen. If you want the longer two-page version, email me, and I'll be glad to send it to you. The point is that for those of you who are believers... God's Spirit is at work in you in a very unique way for the good of this church, that we all might become more and more like Jesus. I don't care if you enjoy teaching or selling books in the book note, serving parents and children in dig or decorating the fellowship hall this week to thank them, leading a care group or organizing events for the care group, caring for children in the nursery, or writing a poem for the Lord's Supper like Travis did a while back. All of you have a contribution to make towards our growth, our growth in Christ's likeness. Which leads us right into the last characteristic of the church as a spiritual community. The church, number four, the spirit enables the church to love as Christ loved us. The Spirit enables the church to love as Christ loved us. That's ultimately where chapter 4 of Ephesians ends in verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Like, I thought we were building ourselves up into Christ. And now he says we're building ourselves up into love. They're the same thing. You look like Christ, you're going to love. The more and more Jesus, through the work of his spirit, the more and more he conforms us into his image, the more and more we will love. Is that not what being spiritual truly means? If anybody was filled with and empowered by the Spirit, it was the Lord Jesus Himself. John 3, 16 even tells us that Jesus had the Holy Spirit without measure. And what did the Spirit drive that man to do? Drove Him to the cross to lay down His life for our eternal benefit. The Spirit... 
when he is in a man, it produces a love that goes like this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. The maturity of a community is not found merely in what they confess. It is not found in merely what they achieve. It is also in how much they love one another sacrificially. When the Spirit unites and indwells and empowers and gifts the church, the world witnesses a very tangible display of the other-oriented, self-sacrificial love of our Lord Jesus. God gives us His Spirit so that the world will experience what He is like, the God who is love. Isn't that what, John, what Jesus prayed? In John 17, He wanted the church to be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. When God fills us with the Spirit, it produces an other-oriented lifestyle in His people. Not a lifestyle that's always bent on asking why everybody else isn't serving me and why my needs aren't being met. The Spirit produces a sense of responsibility in us all for the welfare of the other members of His church. Look with me for a moment at chapter 5, verse 18. In Ephesians, Paul writes, Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then three times expresses the other-oriented life the Spirit produces. Twice in how it affects one another's and once in our looking to God. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's outward, an outward-oriented life. Addressing the others in psalms, hymns. Verse 20, giving thanks to God. Again, outward, I'm looking to God. Verse 20, that was verse 20. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, other-oriented That last one even, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, then plays itself out in the rest of chapter 5 and on into chapter 6 in some lengthy application for husbands and what their submission to Christ looks like. When they submit to Christ, what comes out? Love in the form of self-sacrifice for the benefit of his wife. And when a wife submits to her husband, what, what, what does it look like? It looks like in terms of respect. And when a child submits to his parents, it looks like honor and obedience. And a, even a servant's submission to his master. And what that looks like in terms of obedience and doing your work wholeheartedly as under the Lord. The point is that the disposition of all the members of Christ's community, regardless of what the relationship is, all of the disposition of all its members and how they relate to each other is one of love.
The disposition of all the members in Christ's community relate to each other, not however they feel, but how the Spirit teaches them to love in Christ. And that and His way is love. A love that dies to self to see the other person prosper. Well, what about Galatians 6? Just turn one letter back with me. Page 975 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, Just to bring you up to speed here in in Galatians 6, Paul's charge toward the end of Galatians 5 is is that we all walk by the Spirit, he says, in chapter 5, verse 16, walk by the Spirit. And when we do, he says, we fulfill what the entire law pointed to. Namely, a community of people that would love their neighbors as themselves. So, like he does in Ephesians, Paul also, Paul also does this in Galatians. He brings together life in the Spirit and love. Then he gives us some very positive, concrete examples of what that includes. In chapter 6, verse 1. It means, for example, we restore a wayward brother or sister with a spirit of gentleness. That's one way the Spirit enables us to love. We restore them with a spirit of gentleness. We don't beat them over the head with truth. We don't callously pretend like we don't have the same problems. No. We restore them with gentleness. Gentleness saturates our tone of voice. We have a deep trust in the power of the gospel that gives us patience with this or that brother or sister. We have an affection for their soul that fills our eyes with compassion while we're addressing them. Or how about Galatians 2? This is another good example. Walk in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit looks like this. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Now that doesn't mean that everybody should just start exchanging their burdens with one another. No, it means those who are able to bear burdens should bear bear the burdens of others who are less able at this or that time in the church. But here's what may challenge some of us. Paul's command to bear one another's burdens assumes that we actually know the burdens of one another. And I think that is a challenge to this community in particular. We don't know each other's burdens very well. And we need growth. It assumes that we're actually communicating honestly about our needs instead of putting on a facade. Or it actually means that we're asking each other the harder questions and getting beyond the surface level answers. I love it when people tell me their burdens because it gives another opportunity for Jesus Christ to shine as he empowers his community to meet the needs.
This command also assumes that we're also available to meet the needs once they've been voiced. And that we actually take the initiative in meeting them as Jesus took the initiative in meeting ours. And don't worry. You know, if you can't meet the needs of this or that individual, you have 170 other people you can volunteer to do it with you. So this command assumes that we know each other's burdens, we actually make each other avail- we make ourselves available, and then we act. That's just three examples from Ephesians and then two from Galatians. But I think you get the point. God has put his spirit in us that the very love of Christ might characterize us. The Spirit unites us. He indwells us. He empowers us for ministry. And He enables us to love. I had a New Testament professor in seminary named John Taylor. I think he's still there. And one day he began his lecture on the book of Acts with this question. The book of Acts. Acts of the Apostles... Acts of the Holy Spirit or Acts of Jesus Christ? Which is it? And after mulling over the book of Acts together for an hour and a half, I I got his point. The answer was yes. Yes. The reigning Christ empowers his church with the Spirit. And I pray that he will do the same for all of us. And just by way of reminder, as we begin the new year together as a church, I'd like to end with us all reading from our church covenant. If you would, pull out your worship guides. Or you can find it on the screen. See, more gifts at work in the booth. Thank you, guys. So I'd like us to end today... Or, or as we go into the supper, my reading from our church covenant. And if you are a member, please join me in reading, in, in reminding, reading this and reminding one another again of who we are and how we love. And if you're, even if you're not a member, would you view this time as an opportunity to hear yet another snapshot of what it means for the church to be a spiritual Community, a community that's empowered and indwelt by the Spirit. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God, Angels and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge and holiness, 
to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. We also engage to maintain family and personal devotions, to educate our children in the Christian faith, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all backbiting and excessive anger, to seek God's help in abstaining from practices that bring unwarranted harm to the body or jeopardize our own or another's faith. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the guidelines of our Savior to secure it without delay. We moreover engage to encourage one another as we eagerly await the second coming of our glorious Savior and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And should we move from this place, we will, if possible, unite with the church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant.